Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Dr. Jeffrey Gerber, who is a board-certified family physician, speaker, author, conference organizer, husband, father, and owner of a medical practice in Colorado, whereas he is known as Denver's Diet Doctor. He's also incredibly savvy with low-carb, high-fat, ancestral health, paleo, primal, intermittent fasting, and whole foods, and is frustrated with spiraling healthcare costs related to the treatment of conditions like obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and many others. Today, we dove deep into Dr. Gerber's background, how his 40-pound weight loss really got him interested in looking at metabolic health. We talked about the impact of our modern-day lifestyles and the toxic food environment, the role of deprivation versus mindfulness, common challenges that we find in the current medical system, the role of mitochondria in longevity, the impact of altitude on our metabolism, carbohydrates, and other macros, the role of perimenopause, menopause, and andropause, and weight loss resistant, the differences between insulin-sensitive versus insulin-resistant individuals, the role of therapeutic fasting, deep prescribing, and assessing cardiovascular risk. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Dr. Gerber will absolutely be back for a second podcast episode. Well, Dr. Gerber, it's such an honor to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Great to be here, Cynthia. Tell listeners a little bit about your background, because I know you started in family practice, but you've now evolved into Denver's diet doctor and you know this low-carb keto metabolic health space. How did that journey happen for you? Yes, Cynthia. So I've been a doctor for over 30 years. I got my degree back in 1990. And the first 10 years, I really didn't know much about nutrition. However, my family, we were a bunch of overweight people. And my mom and dad, I really have to give them credit for pushing me to go to medical school and also develop an interest in uh, nutrition. And so initially, as you know, you're in healthcare, we weren't really taught much about nutrition. And the basic advice, eat less, exercise more. It's a matter of uh, sacrifice and just struggling the first 10 years with patients really didn't have results. And so, you know, about 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago, uh, we had patients come to us telling us that they were going to try some of these non-standard diets, such as Atkins, Suzanne Summers diet. And, you know, I'm like yourself, I, I always enjoyed thinking out Side the box being an independent thinker. And so I said to these people, okay, well, I think your heart's going to explode from all the fat that you're going to be consuming, but we'll watch your metabolic markers. And lo and behold, they actually lost weight. They felt better. And their metabolic markers, including lipid profiles, improved. My father-in-law challenged me to lose 40 pounds. And I did so doing a, a low-carb Atkins style of diet. I found it very easy to do and it, it controlled appetite. And later I found out that I was insulin resistant to a certain extent, having metabolic syndrome. And then I started to do my homework and reading about the science and the light bulb went off in the head. And, and it was like, aha, we've got it wrong in terms of nutrition. And so from that point forward, we continued to work with our patients and educating patients. That turned into going out and lecturing. We wrote a book with Ivor Cummins, and now we have these conferences coming up. And I've realized that my passion is education science. So that's the short story. Well, and I'm so grateful for that journey because from my perspective, when I started down the metabolic health journey, you know, my whole background as an NP is in cardiology. And I kept saying, we're missing opportunities. There's something we're missing when I'm putting patients on five antihypertensives and I'm putting them on more diabetes medications and we're sending them for more procedures. I was like, something that we are doing is not effective. And I too used to tell patients, eat less, exercise more, eat to stoke your metabolism, eat those heart healthy grains. And I shudder when I think about, you know, kind of the conventional wisdom that we were trained with and 
the information that we were sharing with patients, which was likely contributing to a worsening of their metabolic health. And so I really applaud you for doing the work yourself first and then applying that to your given patient population. Now, when we start to think about what's changed in our, and when I say in our lives, I say as a society over the last 50, 60 years, I like to speak to the fact that there are a lot of adulterated products that are in our food supply. And for individuals that are eating a standard American diet, which generally is devoid of enough protein, too many refined carbohydrates and really poor quality, highly toxic seed oils, I feel in many ways, our food has become poison effectively. And so, you know, as you've had this 30 year history, what do you feel like has changed for so many of your patients as it pertains to nutrition? Where have we gotten things wrong? What you're referring to is the toxic food environment that we really live in. And, you know, I was asked the other day about uh, what's the single biggest problem with our, our food chain. And that's it. You know, you nailed it. And that is the toxic food environment. And so the industry has unfortunately found the right formulas to create food products that are processed, that drive appetites, stimulate food reward. And we just come back for more and more. And so, you know, with our patients over the years, we want them to be well-informed uh, consumers and to understand this, that, that when they look on packages, what's in the food product and in general, if it's in a package, we might want to avoid it and stick to eating more whole foods. So that is really the overwhelming message that we send out to the patient. And it's really frustrating because, you know, there are some good points to the traditional approach. So the traditional approach is looking at calories in and calories out. And look, calories do matter, but that approach involves, you know, self-sacrifice. You know, you have to consciously reduce the amount of food that you're consuming and increasing the energy output. I mean, some people can do it, but it's hard to do. And then when you're living in this toxic food environment that's driving you to eat more, it's going to fail. And I think that's interesting that one of the aspects to metabolic health and you know people being able to buy into these different nutritional paradigms or methodologies is satiety. And that's something I never talked to my patients about was satiation, you know, eating enough protein so that you are stimulating specific receptors in the body that will allow you to be too full to eat more versus the standard American diet, where it is designed to do everything to dysregulate that communication between our brains and our stomachs and our hormones so that we are driven, literally driven to continue consuming more and more and more food. Yes. So the point is we're trying to shift the focus away from deprivation to what I refer to as mindfulness. And that is to find foods that satiate, to start listening to your body, to the signals of when you're full, when you're hungry, when you need to move, when you need to sleep, when you need to enjoy the company and the friends, just to really revel in life and to be mindful, paying attention to the foods and how they drive appetite and eating foods that are nutrient dense and tend to satiate. And like you said, that's where we go with our patients these days. Absolutely. And do you feel like there are specific items in our food supply that are particularly toxic? I'm getting you to move towards, you know, I've, I've asked many guests that have been on the podcast, what's worse, high fructose corn syrup or seed oils? And I'm curious to know what your answer is, because it's interesting that almost everyone has leaned in one direction versus the other but I'm directing the conversation so that we can touch on one of my favorite subjects, which is mitochondria. Yeah. So I always say, you know, our genetics haven't changed, but the conversation always does. And that's what makes this fun. And, you know, I like to find common themes, Cynthia. And so I'm not hardcore, at least try not to be hardcore with a stance or a position. And so my answer to your question is that I think high fructose corn syrup and industrial seed oils are both things that need to be considered in the diet. And so when we clean up the diet, you realize that those are really manufactured things in a sense. You do get some seed oil, you do get some 
high fructose corn syrup, but you know, the industry has concentrated it because it's tasty, it's addictive, it has a long shelf life. There's all these reasons and our health is at the bottom of it. And so I think they're both important to consider. Yeah, indefinitely. And it's interesting if you are not familiarized with reading food labels, you will start to recognize if you're walking through a grocery store that nearly everything you put your hands on that's in a package, a bag, a box, or a can has these seed oils more often than not. The number one consumed fat in the United States right now, according to Dr. Ben Bickman, who I know we both are colleagues with, is soybean oil and it just proliferates. And so I remind people, I I will do videos in Trader Joe's and Costco. And all I do is search for seed oils. That's the only exercise and trying to explain how challenging it is to navigate because the food manufacturers have gotten very savvy. They'll say things like cold pressed sunflower seed oil, or, you know, they'll use a terminology that doesn't make it entirely clear about what is contained in these products. And so is it any surprise that consumers and patients are confused about what to eat? Because even with best intentions, it can be, you know, very challenging to navigate the grocery store. I'll give you an example. I recently, I do quarterly Trader Joe's videos and usually Costco. And even with my eagle eyes, I brought home bacon And for sure, I was going through everything. I was getting ready to do a video and the bacon, the very last ingredient, tiny print was sunflower seed oil. And I thought to myself, dang it. So the point being that even I sometimes will miss these things. Of course, I went back to the grocery store, but the point of why I'm sharing this is that there's so much confusion about what to eat, that keeping it more or keeping it simple is probably the best advice we can be giving our patients to not overthink it. But if you read food labels and try to eat foods in a less processed, more nutrient dense environment, you're less likely to be exposed to these toxic chemicals. Yeah. So I agree. Keeping it simple is best. And, you know, real briefly looking at the mechanisms, because, you know, just to shout out, okay, fructose and vegetable oils are bad. Well, what's the mechanism behind that? And and the idea behind fructose is that it goes right into the liver and it drives fatty liver disease. The other aspect, we just actually did a really great podcast with Rick Johnson, who's uh, going to be speaking at the conference. And he says that, you know, fructose is the switch that leads to obesity, leptin resistance, the mitochondria stop working. So there's all kinds of mechanisms that implicate uh, fructose, high fructose corn syrup, also carbohydrate in general. And then switching to the um, industrial vegetable oils. So there's always a lot of controversy. Okay. They're not so bad, but you know, from kind of the mainstream people to people in our group who say, you know, they're just as bad as the fructose. And so, as you know, I'm very much interested in cardiovascular health. And what we see is that uh, because of the molecular shape of these industrial seed oils, they're very highly prone to oxidative stress and leading to advanced glycation end products. And, you know, I always bring up the point that uh, when the pathologist looks at the cholesterol plaque, atherosclerosis in the arteries, they're actually filled with these industrial seed oils. They're glycated and they're inflamed. And so the argument is we want to avoid those and eat more natural fats that include both monounsaturated and saturated fat that don't have this molecular structure like industrial seed oils. And they tend to be very stable in the blood. And this is why we make the argument that they're healthier. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting-edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data 
and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Have you been struggling with longer fast? Do you tend to get headaches, loss of energy, or even cravings? If so, beam minerals can be super helpful. We know that longer fasts can be hard, especially when you're first adapting to them. And fasting has the potential in the setting of a lower carbohydrate diet for us to lose more water in our urine as well as electrolytes like sodium, which is why it's so important to not only hydrate, but replace those electrolytes. We know that fasting also temporarily depletes us of also potassium, magnesium, calcium, and a whole lot more. In fact, a lot of the side effects you get on longer fasts like headaches, low energy and cravings are usually the result of mineral depletion. That's where Beam Minerals comes in. It's a full spectrum concentrated mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs all in a single one ounce shot of liquid. Taking Beam Minerals at the start of your fast can help you fast longer and more comfortably. And best of all, you can take it in 30 seconds every morning and it tastes just like water. I also enjoy their Instalite's misting spray, which I use when I'm traveling and I'm not able to stay as hydrated as I would normally like to do. It can also be used as a facial toner. It has electrolytes, trace minerals, some amino acids, and ionized water and it actually can help enhance the bioavailability of your supplements. In addition to that, I've also been happy using their travel products that has some essential grapefruit oils in it that can be antimicrobial. And we all know with the winter weather, cold season, we want to remain as healthy as possible. So give Beam Minerals a try today. It's an amazing tool for enhancing your fast, elevating your electrolytes and helping support healthy immune function. You can go to www.beamminerals.com and use code E. WP at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's www.beamminerals.com and use code EWP at checkout for 20% off. I'd love for you to try these products. I've been really surprised and really happy with them over the last several months. And it's interesting, there was a rabbit study that I presented in a talk that I gave earlier this year, and it was looking at in a rabbit model, looking at seed oils utilized that were heat, were not heated, then heated once versus multiple times. Like think about the fryers at you know most of the fast food restaurants and the toxicity that went up even with just heating it once versus multiple times. So increased oxidative stress, increased inflammation, AGEs, et cetera. And what was interesting is in this study, it was talking about the connection with insulin resistance in rabbits based on what they were exposed to in terms vis-a-vis these different types of seed oils. And so someone may argue, well, a rabbit's not a human, but if animal models were seeing this connection, I think it's particularly powerful. And much to your point, Dr. Rick Johnson, love Dr. Rick. I had an amazing podcast with him earlier this year. And for many, many people, I got more feedback about his infectious 
enthusiasm for teaching us about fructose that I, I think for many, many people, not only his book and his work and his research, but really starting to put those pieces together about you know why fructose is of such a great concern. It is not benign. Yeah, it's great what Rick's doing. And he's so approachable. He he looks like a scary professor, <laughs> distinguished professor of, you know, 30 years experience, but he's super passionate and he's very approachable and he's he's a, a lot of fun. No, he definitely is. I was trying to explain to someone that his enthusiasm about fructose and having us understand the dangers and concerns surrounding it made me even more in fact. I mean, in fact, before we even had our podcast discussion. We had multiple conversations over email and he's just as delightful and down to earth as, as anyone could be, which is really just a, a godsend. So let's touch on mitochondria. So my listeners are certainly familiar with what the mitochondria are vis-a-vis in relationship to intermittent fasting. But when we start thinking about these powerhouses in our cells and how these toxic foods can impact the health of our mitochondria, it's, we start to put pieces together about things that we can do to improve our metabolic health. Yes, Cynthia. So we're both fascinated about mitochondrial health and it really takes us to longevity. And I gave a great talk a couple of years ago and I, I can give you a link to that to share with your listeners today. And we could go on for hours and hours, but I like to kind of simplify it. And so again, the mitochondria, as you say, is the, are the powerhouses of our body. And, you know, my perspective is what do we want to do in terms of longevity, in terms of fueling our body? What is the best fuel for longevity? And I always like to say this expression that longevity is an endurance sport. And that really ties into this idea of how do we find the right fuel? And the argument here is that fat or fatty acids is actually a slow burning fuel throughout life that produces less oxidative stress than say glucose and carbohydrate. And so how do we know that? So we have to kind of dive into the biochemistry and how the mitochondria work. And, you know, for my patients, I, I like to try it to explain it simply as you do as well. Sometimes I oversimplify, but- <laughs> For the purpose of the podcast, we'll try to oversimplify a little bit. And so, you know, we have the mitochondria all over our body and our, our muscle, and they basically process the energy that come in and it, and it can be carbohydrate, it can be fatty acids, fat, it can be protein also. And the output from mitochondria are ATP. So ATP is then used by all parts of our body, you know, muscle, digestive, brain function, just that is the energy pack that is used for life. And if you stop producing ATP, you're dead in seconds. And so I think of the mitochondria as actually a battery and a motor, tiny batteries and motors all over our body. And the energy that comes in has to be processed. Now, the energy is processed actually in the cell itself before it dives into the mitochondria. And so there's things like glycolysis and the citric acid cycle and beta oxidation. And we could go on all day about that. But when it comes to this topic of oxidative stress, we have to really talk about mitochondria because what the mitochondria do is something called cellular respiration. The mitochondria actually breathe. It uses oxygen, you know, oxygen, oxidative stress, it's all tied together. So this is where the oxidative stress comes into it. And just to explain it simply is that when glucose or carbohydrate come into the mitochondria, they actually rapidly charge the battery. And that's actually the inner mitochondrial membrane. And that's because the substrate that comes in goes through three complexes of the inner mitochondrial membrane. But just to simplify it, it charges this battery rapidly. And when you compare that to fatty acids or saturated fat coming into the mitochondria, fatty acids actually charge this battery much slower. And it's got to do with the ratios of NADH and FADH2. And when glucose comes into the mitochondria, it turns out that most of the substrate is NADH, like 75% compared to 25% that's FADH2. And when the fatty acids come into the mitochondria, you're producing about 50-50 NADH to FADH2. 
But when the triglycerides come in, they can only go through two of the complexes versus glucose, which can go through three of the complexes. So as you can see, the battery charges faster with glucose versus fatty acids. Now, this is not hypothesis. This is biochemistry. I actually looked it up this morning again. I found in, uh, several other papers that explain this. And we all know if you need a quick charge, you take glucose because you get energy right away. So we're basically just describing the biochemistry here and what happens. Now, what is hypothesis? And this comes from my background in, in ham radio. You know, when I was a little kid, I loved ham radio electronics. I still build things, computers, networks. We build ham radios, but it reminds me of electrical circuits. And we all know that when we charge, we charge things, say our, our phone, we want to get the charger that gives us a rapid charge. But what usually happens is you can feel the battery and the charger, they really heat up. So when things charge rapidly, it produces heat versus a slow charge, you don't get as much heat on the charger. And so the hypothesis here is that the heat itself is a product of oxidative stress. And so the rapid charge from the glucose denatures cells on a certain sense. And if you think about this throughout lifetime, look, we have to eat glucose, we have to consume glucose, we have to consume fatty acids. But the idea is sometimes you do need glucose when you're in a fight or flight situation. But the idea is that glucose is there for winning the battle, but we want to win the war, which is longevity. And so the hypothesis and what we're proposing here is that fatty acids, fat for longevity is the preferred fuel. I think that's one of the best explanations I've ever heard about mitochondrial metabolism. And for the benefit of listeners, when someone is new to intermittent fasting or new to a lower carb ketogenic lifestyle, the challenges are that their body is not efficient using these different types of fuel substrates. So this can be for many people why they will struggle. I mean, there can be many reasons, but this can explain why many people will struggle with those new ideas about meal frequency and or a lower carb ketogenic lifestyle. Yeah. So first of all, there's many mechanisms to explain oxidative stress in mitochondria. So I'm just presenting one, but there's reverse electron transport. It goes on and on, and, and you can study and research that forever. But the problem with most individuals is they don't exercise enough and they're metabolically unhealthy. And as you say, their mitochondria aren't working fun properly. And there isn't the density of mitochondria that we see in somebody who, who exercises. So an individual say is, you know, not at their ideal body weight and are they're insulin resistant. And they try to go out and exercise. Mark Kukazella actually says they're starving for energy and all they can resort to is glycolysis, which is actually the fermentation of glucose without oxygen. It doesn't produce a lot of ATP. It produces a little bit, but it produces lactate and that causes the muscle to burn and the individual is huffing and puffing. And so the way to, to slowly come out of this is to exercise and to move and to fuel your body properly long-term. And I think for a lot of people, they might be able to do one at first, but not both. I find for many people, maybe they're more on the exercise. It's easier for them to commit to exercise versus changing their diet. But when they can do both, it is really impactful. Now, when I think about exercise, it's different now that I'm a middle-aged person. You know, maybe years ago, I would do, you know, CrossFit type classes and a lot of HIT. And as I've gotten older, and I'm interested in, in hearing if you see the same changes in your middle-aged population of patients, I start to find more zone two training, more walking, more lifting of weights is very, very important for metabolic health. Do you see both men and women struggling a bit in andropause and perimenopause and menopause with their metabolic health? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And look, movement and activity changes throughout life. And, you know, you have to worry about orthopedic injuries. And, you know, my whole life I've struggled with weight, but I've also been very athletic and I have my fair share of injuries. We always joke. The question is, do you want to drop dead in a wheelchair being a cripple or drop dead from a heart attack and diabetes? I'm just using the extreme there, but so we have to find, you know, a good balance in between. And so, you know, I just 
like to tell my patients, do something, move, be active. And, you know, it's also important what you do in between exercise. So I have a kneeling stool, but I like to stand. I'm running around at work today. I, I fidget. One of the patients pointed out to me that I love to fidget and I just naturally do that. But then I also like to participate in, in sports. I like to go to the gym. And so this is what we share with the patients and you know, it can be high intensity, it can be CrossFit, you have to be careful for injuries, you have to go slow. So it changes as time goes on in terms of the activity. Well, and it's interesting because I was a skier in my teens and 20s. We live in a part of the country where there isn't a lot of really good skiing. I know you live in Denver, so you have fantastic skiing being out West. And the last time I skied, I remember saying to my husband, I'm very conscientious at this stage of life. I don't want to get injured and certainly not on a ski slope. So recognizing, which is not to suggest people that are middle-aged can't ski, but the point being, I am very conscientious about doing things where within a safe parameter, but I just said, you know, I don't ski often enough anymore. So for me, I'd rather watch my family ski and I'll do something else. But but certainly that self-preservation is foremost in my mindset. Well, we would love you to come out when you come out to talk at the conference in February to join us for some skiing. And look, it's like anything. You go slow, you take it easy. The altitude brings up a point about mitochondria that I love to talk about, if that's okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, in the East Coast, you ski on the Appalachians and they're not very tall, but, you know, our mountains go up to 14,000 feet and we're skiing up at 10,000 and 12,000 feet. And so, you know, what I have found over the years is that because of my diet, I seem to do exceptionally well at altitude. And it's a curious finding. In fact, we can go skiing all day and we go in for to the cafe or the restaurant around noon to take a break. And I just want to hydrate, have some tea, some water. I'm not even hungry. And you find out that a lot of people who spend time in the mountains and eat healthier seem to do fine. And it's a curious thing because the altitude people will tell you that carbohydrate is the preferred fuel because it requires less oxygen. Interesting. And that's actually true. I've actually taken the deeper dive looking on a molecular basis in terms of the carbon that is in the molecule, you know, in the energy molecule, either glucose or lipid and how much oxygen you need. Now, we all know that per gram, there's more energy in fat than glucose. And that's simply because Fatty acid doesn't have a lot of oxygen molecules in it. So that's where the O2 comes in. And that actually gives you way more energy. Now, that doesn't mean you need way more oxygen to per on a molecular basis to metabolize fatty acid. You do need a little bit more. You do need a little bit more oxygen to metabolize fatty acid. So, you know, I'll give the altitude people that that they are correct. You you do need slightly more oxygen to metabolize fatty acid on, on a molecular basis, but there's so much more to it. So if you're a trained athlete, you know, your mitochondria are doing well, they can metabolize both fuels, breathing the muscles of respiration are working maximally. So what happens is that the say fat adapted athlete at altitude they're living at peak performance. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm living at peak performance, but I've adapted to it. And the idea here is that at altitude, I'm burning fat much better than say somebody, you know, my age who's 62, that's a carb burner. So my body has learned to burn the fat and, you know, there's more energy in the fat so I can go skiing all day long. And so it's just interesting. We we see that with fat adapted athletes at altitude all the time. That's amazing. And it's interesting that altitude impacts our mitochondria, but if you are already metabolically flexible, that it allows you to function more optimally. Now, I'm curious because I got several questions surrounding this. In your practice, I'm sure you work with a wide variety of ages, but for those people that are hitting middle age, and I'm saying this in generalities because it could be men or women, what are some of the common challenges you start seeing in your middle-aged patients vis-a-vis metabolic health? What are some of the things that they will come to you? I know weight loss resistance is a huge one for me personally. It seems to be that's like the common resounding concern is why can't I lose weight when everything I used to do is no longer working? But I know there are some hormonal fluctuations that can impact weight loss resistance. But for you personally in your practice, 
what are some of the common challenges you see your middle-aged patients dealing with? Yeah. Well, first of all, Cynthia, you know, as we age as healthcare professionals, our patients usually follow along with us. So they age with us. And so you seem to get like a similar population. We see all, all age groups and because of what we do, we do get all age groups, but we tend to see middle and older age individuals. And, you know, the beauty of what we do, and we're still in the healthcare system because we want to help our patients navigate through all the time bombs that healthcare, you know, landmines rather, navigate through all the landmines that, that healthcare has to offer. You know, we have a lot of people that have given up with the healthcare system in general, but, but not myself. I still enjoy seeing patients under this context. And so obviously we're dealing with the big three all the time. So that's diabetes, obesity, and heart disease. And in the context of what we do here is we're approaching it through lifestyle and diet. Our goal is to de-prescribe medication. We're also very good at prescribing medication. And, you know, we still do that. So we're kind of bridging that gap. So we deal with all these, you know, stand, you know, traditional medical issues. And, you know, it's an interesting thing that we've done literally thousands of glucose tolerance tests over the years, including insulin levels. And it's really given us some great perspective. And we really have to find, thank Dr. Joseph Kraft, who spent his 40 years of research looking at the insulin assay. And Ivor Cummins and I had the opportunity to interview him when he was 95 years of age a, a few years back. He passed away, bless his soul. But because it's through that, we started doing these glucose tolerance tests. And what has been revealing is that not everybody's insulin resistant. And we have patients, everyone seems to think, okay, the whole problem is insulin resistance, insulin tr resistance, just treat that and, and you're going to be gold. But in particular, we have women who are not at their ideal body weight and they tend to be insulin sensitive. I would say it may be a third or even more of the women, again, insulin sensitive. And so the question is, well, what's going on there? So first of all, their personal fat threshold, which simply means their ability to store fat is actually much greater than men. And so we have women who come in and they are definitely not at their ideal body weight, but we do their metabolic measurements and they're really very, very healthy. And, and so, you know, why is that? Well, clearly it probably has something to do with reproduction and hormones. And so we have to put it all in context with our particular patients and, and the approach to diet. And so, look, if the individual is diabetic and full-on insulin resistance, and there's this whole spectrum of, of insulin, the insulin spectrum, and you have to consider you know, if they're diabetic, fully insulin resistant, or they're insulin sensitive. So the diabetic ones really do great with higher fat diet because you know, glucose is what's driving insulin, carbohydrate is driving insulin, and if you remove the fuel that's driving insulin, very rapidly, you'll reverse insulin resistance. Patients will get better. But actually, as those individuals get better, they become more insulin sensitive. And so like the insulin sensitive individuals, if you put them on a high fat diet, they'll respond. The fat is very filling, of course. But we have to consider that fat is also caloric dense. Calories do matter. And so with these two individuals. And what is the common theme there is that we do want to focus on mindfulness and satiety, looking at, at how we can control appetite in these patients. We don't want to, again, tell them to eat less and exercise more. We don't want to deprive them of the joy of life that life has to offer. And so it's just the point with these in, insulin sensitive women is that we probably, not probably, we want to think about fat calories. We want to eat enough fat to fill. Ben Bickman is great at saying this. So the way to do that is by eating more lean cuts of animal proteins, increasing protein because protein is nutrient dense and filling by itself. And then it's not just about eating 20, under 20 or 40 grams of carbs a day. These are the individuals that can eat more carbohydrate. But the mindfulness, again, looking in, as to what are the foods that are satiating to me? Am I hungry? Do I need to eat? Do I need to not eat? Can I skip a meal? Do I need to go out and move? And so this is the difference in patients. And I think it's critical. And again, I've challenged you to give a talk 
at the conference in February on these insulin sensitive individuals. And I hope you're up to the challenge, Cynthia. Oh, I absolutely am. I'm really excited. And what's interesting for me is that these insulin sensitive females that I have had the honor of working with, I find for them that I agree with you hundred percent that they can still have fats, but they're usually leaning into plant-based fats, which tend to be a little lighter. I think they still have to be very conscientious about the quantity of fats that they eat because you know, as you very appropriately stated that fats, if we're looking at macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrates, carbs and protein are four grams per calorie and fats are nine. So really thinking, this is why I always say measure your fats. If you do nothing else, just if you're trying to be conscientious about it, but I find many women can overdo it very easily with seemingly innocuous and benign foods, like whether it's nuts or cheese, those two seem to be the biggest culprits because it's very easy to overeat those delicious, salty, satiating, fatty foods. And I would also agree with you that it is more than just insulin. I find for many of these women, especially in peri and menopause, perimenopause and menopause, as they are getting closer to 12 months without a menstrual cycle, their bodies are having these profound metabolic shifts and the understanding that when you have low estradiol, so predominant form of estrogen, as you are transitioning into menopause, you are at greater risk for replacing, not only you're going to have more adipose tissue, less muscle tissue, which is less metabolically active, but just by virtue of having low estradiol, high FSH, follicular stimulating hormone, your body will start creating, unfortunately, will start creating additional fat. And in that fat, you'll have estrone, which is this weaker form of estrogen. And why I'm sharing this, women will say, why am I having, like, there's all this extra fluff that I haven't had to deal with before and mm. reminding them that our bodies are trying their darndest, even though there's less estrogen circulating, their bodies are trying to figure out a way to produce more estrogen. And this is one of the ways that this happens. Yeah. Well, look, I talked to Jamie Seaman and she really impressed upon me how women are the reproductive species and the bodies go through so much change throughout life, including menopause. And so that's a critical time. And, you know, I don't want to call it male menopause, but some of these issues also apply to men as well. As mm -hmm. we get older, you know, we have to really work hard to maintain our hormonal health and, you know, diet and lifestyle are the way to do this. And I also wanted to say, Cynthia, that, you know, this can all be done through a low carb vegetarian diet. I mean, there are ways to do it. And the other point is that, you know, there are two camps. There's the hormonal camp and the calorie camp. And the thing is, there shouldn't be camps. They both interplay. And so that's kind of my whole perspective where I try to find some common themes and balance and bring it all together. Well, I'm so grateful that you are a resounding, you know, balanced perspective in this space. I know that you utilize intermittent fasting as a strategy with some of your patients and what have been the results that you've seen in terms of metabolic health, mitochondrial health for both men and women in your practice? So that is another tool and it works for some people. It doesn't work for others. But we have individuals, you know, for which it's worked that they hit a weight loss plateau. And we simply just said, pay attention to when you eat and, you know, try to eat two meals a day. If that's working, try to eat one meal a day. We think that one meal a day is, is optimal. The other trick is, okay, Dr. Gerber, you know, I tried that and I ate breakfast and lunch and I skipped dinner. And that didn't seem to work for me. So what I did was I skipped breakfast and I ate lunch and dinner and that worked for me. So it's going to be different for everybody. And lo and behold, that helped the individual go off of the weight loss plateau. And we also have individuals that can do extended fast, that they can go continuously eating once a day and that, that seems to work for them. We've done two and three day fasts and I think they're perfectly safe, but I don't particularly like the patients that come in and brag about not eating. <laughs> that happens all the time. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm so proud of myself. But again, it's, you don't want to force anything. And, you know, why does that work? So there's all kinds of theories about, 
you know, you're in a state, in a catabolic state for a longer period of time, extending the fast during the nighttime. So it turns on catabolism or burning fat. Here's another simple explanation. It reduces the amount of food that the individual consumes at the end of the day. So again, we're bringing it all together with that one. One of my favorite ways to take care of my health is to consider targeted supplementation. And one of my favorite supplements that I take on a daily basis is MitoPure. It has 15 years worth of research, 11 human clinical trials, 300 studies already on urolithin A, and it is one of those supplements that can help support healthy aging. MitoPure is the first and only clinically tested, highly pure urolithin A postbiotic. And unlike dietary sources like pomegranate juice, MitoPure delivers efficacious levels of urolithin A. The soft gels combined are a thousand milligrams and the powder, which is my favorite, is 500 milligrams in each packet. I've seen significant increases in not only my strength in the gym, but also my VO2 max, which I recently had tested earlier this month. And we know that healthy aging is really dependent on the health of our mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of our cells. And every aspect of health and well-being is really dependent on mitochondrial health, whether it be our bodies, our immune systems, our brain, our gut, skin, muscle. We know that mitochondrial health is absolutely essential. MitoPure actually triggers our body's natural mitochondrial repair processes, rebuilding and replacing damaged mitochondria with new ones, which leads to increased cellular energy as well as muscle strength and endurance. MitoPure is one of a kind. It's backed by science that I trust. It does what no other supplement can do, and I recommend you try it for yourself. To save 10% on your first purchase, go to www.timelinenutrition.com and use code Cynthia for 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's timelinenutrition.com and use code Cynthia for 10% off. One of the most common concerns I see in perimenopause and menopause is hair loss, hair breakage, hair shedding. And knowing that over 80 million Americans are impacted by this is both reassuring, but it's wonderful to know that there are products available that can help with these symptoms. Divi is good for those with hair shedding or thinning due to stress in perimenopause or menopause. They can be helpful for addressing dry scalp. And have you wanted to take control of your hair health but aren't sure where to start? This is where a Divi can be hugely impactful. I love their scalp serum. And we know that the scalp serum improves the appearance of breakage, nourishes our hair follicles, and removes product and oil buildup. There are some key ingredients, including tea tree oil, which works to reduce and prevent excess oil buildup on the scalp, amino acids that help to strengthen hair, fight frizz, which is my greatest concern, and reduce breakage, and copper tripeptide 1, which is a small protein composed of the three amino acids to facilitate a clean and hydrated scalp, as well as hyaluronic acid, which is nourishing and hydrating to our scalps. As I mentioned, Divi is not just for those experiencing hair loss. I found it to be hugely helpful for scalp health and all of Divi's products, including their shampoos and conditioners, Come together to create a full daily solution that helps women nourish their hair and get to the root of scalp health. Do you want to take back control of your hair and scalp health and do it with clean, science-backed ingredients? Go to DiviOfficial.com slash Cynthia or enter Cynthia at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's D-I-V-I official.com slash Cynthia for 20% off your first order. As I mentioned, my favorite product is the scalp serum. And now that we're in the deep throes of winter weather, it is so wonderfully nourishing and moisturizing. And I love your explanation about it works for some people, not for all, to really lean into what's working for you. You know, this kind of intuitive eating, intuitive fasting, I know it's not possible for everyone up front, but that's what we hope we can get our patients to, to a time where they're able to appropriately respond. I'm hungry, I should eat. I'm not hungry. I should not force myself to eat is a big distinction. Now we have a shared passion for cardiovascular health. And I know this is an area that I'm really interested in diving into with you. Let's talk about your approach to cardiovascular health, testing, 
labs. I know that you do advanced lipid analysis. I know that you do diagnostic testing, you know, carotid arteries, CACs, et cetera. Let's talk about this a little bit. Actually, a lot of the questions I received were specific to this, people who wanted to hear your perspectives on heart health. So you're telling me you query your audience before these podcasts? I do. I'm a gigantic nerd. (laughs) Well, Cynthia, you're not a nerd. You're just super organized. Kudos. (laughs) Yeah, I do. Well, because it's interesting that I've learned, it allows me to have a sense of what people are leaning into. There's always common themes with every guest. However, specific guests in particular, I'll ask, what are you interested in learning about? Or what do you have questions about? Because that allows me to feel like I've got an interplay with my audience as well. Yeah, that's great, Cynthia. Yeah, so my interest in cardiovascular health is personal. You know, as I age, I said, look, I want to live a long time. I don't want to have heart attacks. I don't want to have strokes. I don't want to have diabetes. And so I just really became fascinated again, you know, 20 plus years ago that this nutritional advice seemed to be counter to the mainstream that, you know, eating red meat was going to cause cancer and eating saturated fat was going to make your heart explode. So I started just diving into the data and that really took me to the metabolic syndrome. And that work really dates back to the 1980s. And so the idea there with the metabolic syndrome is that it's really the ratios or the quality of the cholesterol that seems to be more associated with cardiovascular risk than what was traditionally thought of as in terms of LDL by itself. And so you know, for 50 years, it's the hard associations that have had us focus with blinders on looking at specifically LDL cholesterol. And the idea there was that if we can do everything we can to lower LDL cholesterol, we don't have to worry about anything else and we're going to live forever. Well, that has not really been proven to be the case. And when you actually look at the literature, especially for primary prevention, meaning that individuals that are free of heart disease, meaning that they didn't have a heart attack or event. If you lower cholesterol, or if you put them in a diet that is lower in saturated fat, it really hasn't been shown to prolong life. And we see that over and over again. And it's interesting, Dr. Karam Nasser, who's worked with Arthur Agatston, will be speaking at the conference on cardiovascular health And he understands that, that there's a bit of controversy there in terms of the original data, even dating back to Framingham, that, you know, there doesn't seem to be this correlation. And so getting back to metabolic syndrome, we look at things in terms of the ratio of triglyceride to HDL. And so if that ratio is less than two to one, you can be certain that if you did advanced lipid testing, that you'd have the large, fluffy, healthy particles. And then more importantly, you have to look at the metabolic health. You have to look at insulin markers. And so one thing, if you look at a standard lipid profile, it's just a proxy to insulin resistance. So if you have a very high triglyceride and a a low HDL, you're almost certain to see insulin resistance. So here's the thing about the blood markers. They're great. I describe it as the fuel in the um, gas tank. So when you get these blood markers, they kind of tell you the state of the fuel. How's the fuel doing? But if you want to kind of get a measurement of long-term or to look at the engine or the heart pumping itself, this is where you do some heart imaging. So that's why we like to do these heart calcium scores because they're really a non-invasive tool to look at cardiovascular risk. And you can look at the total burden of calcium. It's a $99 test. It's a tiny bit of radiation. There's other screening tests that you do that can be a little more invasive, such as a CT angiogram that exposes you to dye in a little more radiation. But as a screening tool, the heart calcium scan really gives you information, historical information about the health of the heart. And we like to do some serial testing and look for progression of calcium volume And I think when a patient comes in and and they go on these diets and they see their LDL go up, but their ratios are good, they're worried that somehow this presents them with an increased risk of having a heart attack. We just resort to the imaging and, you know, it's great if they have a zero score, their 10-year risk is the lowest possible, but, you know, patients come in and, and they have calcium and we deal with that. If they have a really high calcium score, say over 400, we do have a discussion about uh, medication 
We still prescribe and have a discussion with patients for secondary prevention, meaning if they have had a heart attack. I think with all else being equal, if a patient can't change their diet, well, again, this is where we can resort to medication. But if they're going to make significant change, we can motivate them with the, the results of the calcium score. Well, that's we've served our purpose. And so a lot of people argue, oh, the calcium score is useless. Well, its primary role here is to motivate individuals to make change in their diet and lifestyle. I think it's a really powerful tool. And certainly when I started in cardiology a long time ago, that was not an option. And it was more stress testing and echoes and all these other diagnostics. But I love that you're looking at a total cholesterol and the triglycerides, the HDL, the LDL with a different lens. Because I would say on social media, on any given day, one of the things my the team has to field questions about, I went on a ketogenic or low carb diet and my total cholesterol went up and my doctor or my nurse practitioner, or whomever wants to put me on medication. And I usually will share the podcast I did with our mutual friend talking about the fact that, you know, it can be a transient, you know, I'm a hyper responder. So, you know, when I'm lean mass hyper responder, so Dave Feldman's doing all this amazing research. He's an engineer, which means he's very nuanced. You know, he's looking at all the details and he's helping to change the mindset methodology around lipid panels and looking at cholesterol. But I remind people that transient changes in an overall cholesterol panel are not per se a bad thing. Again, we want to look at those triglycerides. We want to know that they're as low as they can be. We want to make sure our HDL is optimized. And I think for many years, we were so focused on one metric, just the LDL, and we would drive that down as far as we could, as fast as we could. And then I would watch a lot of my patients develop side effects. And it wasn't until I took care of a wonderful biochemist who worked at the NIH. She changed my whole perspective on statin use. And there was an appropriate time and a place. I'm by no means not suggesting that. But she started talking to me about the net impact of statin utilization and how that can impact memory and cognition. And that dove me down this massive rabbit hole. So these medications, although they can be helpful in specific individuals, are not without side effects. Yeah. Well, I love that you have a background in cardiology. Cynthia, that's really fantastic. And it is unfortunate, but again, lipid metabolism is there to really transport uh, fat soluble vitamins, minerals, and nutrients throughout the body. And, you know, the Heart Association decades ago seemed to conflate it with cardiovascular risk. So we have to, you know, consider it in perspective. And, and look, it is a very contentious subject. And to me, that makes it fun and actually interesting. You know, it's interesting and fun and, and people are just arguing back and forth. And look, I don't do research here. I see patients and we've been using this approach with our patients for coming up on almost 25 years. We're really, you know, old timers at this. And if we were giving bad nutritional advice, you would think that our patients would be dropping dead like flies. And, you know, I'm joking, but I'm serious. That's not the case. We've, you know, improved patients' diabetes. We probably prevented them from having heart attacks. You know, we still have patients that have heart attacks in the office. Some are more compliant with the diet than others, but we think that we're on the right path. Well, I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. And I'm curious, you know, obviously low carb Denver is coming up in a few months. What is the direction you see nutrition science going in into 2023? Any predictions, any ideas where of, of newfound ideas that are on the horizon? Yeah. Well, you know, as you know, we are a theme for the conference is where is nutrition headed? And I'm going to say that that's going to hopefully be answered by you and the rest of the speakers. <laughs> so I guess I'm not quite sure where we are going. I want to learn more myself. But, you know, again, I think I hope at the end of the conference that that we will develop some common themes in terms of where we're headed. Well, it's very exciting. And obviously we have so much in common. We could talk for hours. So I'll definitely have to have you back on the podcast. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to register for Low Carb Denver, at which I am grateful and fortunate to be a speaker at. Let them know how to find you. 
Yeah, well, it's great to have you, Cynthia. And to your audience, if you want to support our conference, you support nutrition science. And honestly, we can't do it without you. And it really took a lot of effort having taken a three-year hiatus to put the conference on. And, and we want to continue year to year. We can't do it without the, the audience is almost the most important group. And that includes the general public and healthcare professionals. But if you want to find out more about the conference, you can visit lowcarbconferences.com, the website, social media. For me personally, you can find me on social media at Jeffrey Gerber, MD. Well, wonderful. Thank you again for your time today, Dr. Gerber. A pleasure, Cynthia. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe, and tell a friend. 